0: And we'll look together in verse 29, John 1, 29. Scriptures record. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who was who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be made manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. It's important as we approach this section and really any section of Scripture um, that that we always do it in humility, that we also always do it in reverence, that we always look for it to, to challenge us and change us, for it to truly transform our thinking. Uh, that that's, this is not just an exercise that we do. Uh, we get up on an icy Sunday morning and uh, traverse the highways uh, simply just to come and see one another, uh, simply just to come and adore this wonderful building. Uh, that's not the goal. The goal is to hear from the Lord. The goal is that we leave this place different than the way we arrived, encouraged, edified, strengthened, maybe for some of us saved, rescued. But it's my prayer and I pray your prayer that transformation will take place in our midst, that the Holy Spirit's going to move in a powerful way as he sees fit for God's glory. So let's go to the Lord quickly. And one of the things that it's always important is to come to a heart that's confessing. I don't know about you. When I used to be a parishioner and didn't have to preach, uh, Karen and I would have discussions on Sunday mornings. Some people have other words for discussions called arguments. The kids would be harassing me on Sunday mornings, and I would be forced to get a little short with them. Why are you guys laughing? So it's important for us to confess sin. So let's just go to the Lord quickly and have a few moments of silence, just for silent confession, that God would speak to us through his word. Lord, the psalmist asks what I pray we ask. Search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear you clearly. And we want to change. We want to be changed. And we thankful. We're thankful that your spirit is doing that. But we're cooperating, I pray, with the Spirit in our listening and in my speaking. But would you transform us, change us in amazing ways for your glory this morning? Forgive us of sin. Forgive us of the things that we've done that are displeasing to you. We want to hear you clearly. You resist the proud, but you give grace. To the humble, we need that grace. So we humble ourselves before you, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week we began to look at this section of scripture, where John the writer is reflecting back on the ministry of John the Baptist, and we learned in last week, uh, last week's sermons in nineteen through twenty-eight that John had a group of people. Um, Jewish leadership had sent uh, the Pharisees, excuse me, the Pharisees we came to know, but it initially just says priests and Levites, to inspect his ministry, to see what are you really teaching and why are you teaching? Who, Who sent you? And John is able to ask many of those questions, and he tells who he is. He also declares who he isn't, and he begins to tell them of this one who is going to be coming, this, this Jesus who is worthy of all things, but I'm not worthy to to tie shoes, he basically says. So in this section of Scripture, we're talking about the next day, because that's how the the text starts there in verse 29. The next day, he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus. We will see this throughout, uh, especially in chapter 1. We see it down in verse 35 and again the next day, um, verse 43, and again the next day. So these are successive days that Jesus Christ is doing ministry. But at this juncture, it's John the Baptist who is testifying uh, about Jesus. He is telling, uh, I don't know if it's still the same Jews that came to inspect him but he is telling a crowd that we find in the synoptics when he's preparing to baptize Jesus he is talking to this crowd of Jews regarding the one who is coming and what i pray that we see in this whole sermon behold the lamb of god is that the faithful witness of Jesus will boldly proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Uh, that Jesus is unlike any other who has ever existed. Jesus has accomplished something more than anyone else who has ever existed. Uh, I think in common vernacular, we might say Jesus is the man. Uh, Jesus, in some circles, Jesus is that dude. Uh, Jesus is the real deal. There is none like him and his ministry, his activity are exclusive to him and him alone. And John starts out from the very beginning. Uh, some translations say, Look, the Lamb of God. I don't like that. I don't think it's strong enough. New American Standard and other translations that say, Behold, I just like the way that, that sounds. Behold, can you hear him saying that? Behold the Lamb of God. Look upon the Lamb of God. John says, Don't look at me, don't look at my ministry, don't look at what I'm doing. Behold the Lamb of God. And in the context of this, we must remember to think this through. Don't check your intellect at the door. John, the gospel writer, is writing to a group of people, both Jew and Gentile. And in this context, he is writing about the ministry of John the Baptist, who was speaking to Jews. Remember, those people that came out to John's baptism were all Jewish no Gentiles yet. So remember that. So that's the context of this speech that John is giving. I'm speaking to a Jewish crowd. So what we have to ask ourselves to from the very, very beginning, what does John mean when he says, behold, the Lamb of God? How would a Jewish crowd have understood that phrase? It's exclusive to John. So what does John mean? There are a couple of possibilities in this proclamation of the Lamb of God that John could be saying about Jesus. And you'll be familiar with most of these passages. Genesis 22, 7 through 13 is the story of Abraham and, and Isaac. And remember that story. It's, 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 it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's humorous, but it's interesting because Isaac's response to me is, is, is humorous. Hey, pops, my language. Hey, hey, Dad, I, I, I see the kindling. I I see the wood for the sacrifice. Dad, Dad, I see you've got everything prepared for the sacrifice. But but, but dad, there's one thing missing, dad. The sacrifice. And he provides this. Abraham says these words. God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering my son. Is that what John means when he says lamb here in John chapter 1? Is he referring to this? This lamb that, that Abraham was referring to? Quite possibly. Well, how about the lamb of Leviticus 16, the scapegoat? But the goat on which the lot of the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. In other words, as the high priest laid his hands on that scapegoat, transferring the sins of Israel to that goat and then sending it out to the wilderness, is that what John means by the lamb of God? Quite Possibly. Well, how about Exodus 12? We know the story on the the very last plague, the angel of death comes into the nation of Egypt and destroys all those firstborn who do not have the blood over its house where we see here the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Is it the blood of that lamb that John is considering as the hyssop is dipped into the blood and placed over the mantle of the home? Is that what John's talking about? That lamb, that lamb's blood? Quite possibly. How about in chapter, or excuse me, number four in Exodus 29, where it talks about that a perpetual offering shall be made of lambs. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously, one in the morning and one in the evening. Is John talking about that lamb? Quite possibly. Well, how about the, the lamb that is spoken of in Isaiah 53, seven, like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it cheers, So he did not open his mouth. Is it that lamb that John is talking about? Is he talking about this Abrahamic lamb? Is he talking about the, the lamb of the scapegoat? Is he talking about the lamb that was slain for the Passover? Is he talking about the perpetual offering lamb? Is he talking about this suffering lamb that is led to slaughter? Well, which is it? I think it's all of them. A.W. Pink says these words. There before John stood the one whom all the sacrifices the Old Testament times had foreshadowed. It is exceedingly striking to observe the progressive order followed by God in the teaching of Scripture concerning the Lamb. I think when John says here, behold, the Lamb of God, he is encompassing all those things that we just talked about. He is referring to all those things. That's the lamb that I'm talking about. That's why that lamb that is doing those things is worthy to be looked at. Because not only is that lamb come, look, what does that lamb do? That lamb has taken away the sins of the world. So how do we understand this lamb And from our vantage point, I want to suggest to you six things. Number one, the lamb that John is describing is a submissive lamb. Isaiah 53 that we just read said that the lamb was led away to slaughter. You know, Jesus wasn't forced to come here. Jesus, in his humility and obedience to the Father, for before the foundation of the world knew that he would come and die, he was a submissive lamb. It is this submissive lamb that we worship. He was led to slaughter as a lamb before the shear is silent. He doesn't open his mouth. Philippians 2 tells us what? He, he was humbled. He thought it not robbery to wrap himself in flesh and come and become incarnate. The lamb is submissive. Secondly, he's a spotless lamb. Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more would the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus was the, Jesus is the, the lamb of God is the spotless lamb without sin. There's still a debate about that in our world today. When people think of Jesus and his humanity, he had to sin because all humans sin, don't they? Well, no, they don't because that one didn't, he didn't. I love how Peter says it in 1 Peter 1, 9, listen to this but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the perfect blood of Christ, untainted, sinless. So this lamb is submissive. This lamb is spotless. Needless to say, say it's a sacrificial lamb. The lamb came to die. Jesus knew from the very beginning what his fate was going to be, what his, what, what his purpose and plan was to die i have come to die we will see woman my time is not yet come jesus will say to his mother don't you know it must be about my father's business jesus says the lamb came to be sacrificed the lamb came to be slain number four he's a substituting lamb second corinthians 5 21 he made him who knew no sin To be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin who knew no sin on our behalf. I think we could change our to your and mine. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see that great exchange? Well, how fair that is. He takes all our sin debt, past, present, and future, and we get his perfect righteousness. Boy, that's equitable, isn't it? All the things we've ever done, all the things we've ever thought about doing, all the sins we have committed or will committed, Christ took for us, and he gives us his righteousness. He's the substituting lamb. Brothers and sisters, the cross that you deserved and I deserved, he took on his back. Became a sacrifice for us, the substituting lamb. What's amazing is some in this room will reject that substitution, won't they? I want to stand myself. I, I can handle it myself. I'm a good enough person. I, I sell Girl Scout cookies. I walk little old ladies across the street when it's icy. I'm a good person. I'm, I get A's. Man, I've got a perfect work performance. You should have seen the projects I produced. That compares to the substituting, sacrificial, spotless, submissive lamb. He substituted his life. His penalty, I mean, the penalty, our penalty, he took. So he's the substituting lamb. He is the satisfying lamb. There's some debate, I don't know why, on uh, who's, what, what reason did Jesus come? Who's, who is he satisfying? And there's all sorts of atonement theories out there. And what, what, was this, what was the purpose of Jesus dying? Some have a problem with this doctrine, by the way. Some like, don't like to think that Jesus is satisfying the wrath of God. Because they don't like to think of God as this big angry ogre in the heavens, lit ready with his hammer to kill people, and Jesus Christ coming and saying, I satisfied the wrath of your wrath of my people, that is due my people, your people. They don't like that thought. 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the satisfying one. He satisfies the righteous wrath of the Father that abides over the unbelievers. And I don't say this because I hate you if you're an unbeliever. I say this because I love you. If you don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says the wrath of God abides on you. You're not rejecting me. I never get offended when people, you're dumb, stupid. That's foolish stuff. Whatever. You're rejecting the path in which God has given you to be reconciled to him, his son. And God's wrath abides on you. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. But Christ satisfied the wrath of God. You have been reconciled to him. You know God's not mad at you? As a believer, do you... It's okay to say amen for that one. You know he's not mad at you. He is not wrathful towards you because of what Jesus has done. The wrath has been satisfied. There's no more anger there. Now, does he discipline us? Yes, but we don't ever have to worry about wrath. We don't ever have to worry about God's wrath. We worry about God's worry, about God's joy. How much joy we're going to have. I'm going to have more joy than you. Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to have more than you. Uh-uh. I'm going to have more joy than I mean, my dad' fish is this big, right? And we're going to go back and forth. Who's going to have the most joy because of what Jesus did? We don't have to worry about wrath. He satisfied the wrath of God. That's why we worship him. We don't wait just till Good Friday to think about these things. Something we reflect upon all the time. Behold, the Lamb of God has come. He's taken away the sins of the world. He satisfied the wrath of the Father. Finally, he is the supreme lamb. Can I tell there's no other lamb coming. This is the final lamb. This is the supreme lamb. This is the perfect lamb. There's no other lamb coming. Orthodox Jews are waiting for another lamb to come. The Messiah hasn't come in their world. Muslims teach the same thing. There was a great prophet coming. The great prophet has come. He is the supreme lamb. Hebrews 10, 11. Listen to this. But he, having offered sacrifice, excuse me, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Hebrews 10, one sacrifice on the cross. He paid it all for all time for those who have trusted in him. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why should that be good to you? You're the ones who are being sanctified. We're the ones who have been sanctified. He has perfected for all time. That's us. It's a done deal with Jesus. I think of the old song I sang as a child. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small child of weakness. Watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. How's the refrain go? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. But what? He washed it white as snow. Hallelujah. Sin is done. I don't have to concern myself with that eternal damnation. I'm free. Jesus, Calvin says, he comes to take away the sins of the world by the sacrifice of his death and he reconciles men to God. There are other favors indeed which Christ bestows bestows on us, but this is the chief favor And the rest depend upon it that by appeasing the wrath of God, he makes us to be reckoned holy and righteous for from this source flow all the streams of blessing that by not imputing our sins, he receives us in favor. He is standing with his arms wide open. When we reach glory, he is not going to raise his hand and shun you. He is going to receive you because of the work of Jesus. That's why he's the supreme lamb, y'all. But I ain't done because the Bible's not done. J.C. Rowe writes these words, and then we're going to go to Revelation 5 quick. Christ did not come on earth to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. He came to save sinners. He came to do that which man could never do for himself, to do that which money and learning could never obtain, to do that which is essential to man's real happiness. He came to take away sin. What our world needs today is to be reconciled to God by having their sins washed clean. They don't need the right political party. They don't need necessarily even the right kind of church. They need the unblemished lamb of God. Stop turning them on to your political affiliations, your get which cream schemes, your 401ks, whatever kind of information you may be trying to give them other than Jesus. Give them Jesus, the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Revelation 5. Whew. It's getting good to me. Revelation 5. Who's writing Revelation? John. This is the revelation of Jesus. John's able to see things that are going to come in the future. And I love this scene. I love how it starts out. I mean, to, to me, if I were to let me like a movie, I would make it like a movie just on this passage alone. This section is so rich because it has these highs and lows, right? I, I, I love it. Because John, is he's standing there and he sees on the throne a book written, verse 1, written on the inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who was worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. See that crescendo. What's John's response in verse 4? I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Now listen to this. This is amazing. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and his seven seals. So what's coming? Aslan's coming. There's a lion coming. This conqueror is coming. He's going to open the seals. He's going to snatch the book out with his teeth and his claws, and he's going to grab it. That's not what comes. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders of lamb standing as if slain. It's the slain lamb that is able to do it, not the roaring lion. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out from all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Don't miss that. Who's sitting on the throne, y'all? God's sitting on the throne. Who's worthy to take something out of God's hand? Jesus is. The slain lamb, not this roaring lion. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each holding a golden harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Man, I love hearing choirs. Gospel choirs, non-gospel choirs. Love hearing people sing in unison. And I bet it's wonderful in a lot of places on Sunday mornings like this, but there's none like a song like this one. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain. Look at what's attributed to him and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. It's not done yet. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's the supreme lamb he's talking about. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the thrones, and living creatures, and the elders, and numbers of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're not done worshiping this lamb yet. See how it started? It was the elders giving him praise. Then it extends out to the angels that are giving him praise. In verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all those things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's going to be us singing that. That's going to be me and you. I can see us. No, nah, we're going to be doing this. The elbows are gone. It's going to be, yes. Those are hugs, by the way. Hugs. You haven't done it in a long time. Hugs. Holy kisses. Yes. Worthy is the lamb. That's going to be us. Can you wrap your mind around that? That's the supreme lamb. Randy, that's the supreme lamb who rescued us. Amazing. Amazing. I got to keep going. The illumination of the lamb of God. Oh, I so want to stay there. Verses 32 and 33. So John is proclaiming who this lamb is. He is the lamb who is taking away the sins of the world. How did John come to understand that? How did he come to know who this Messiah is? Let's look at 32 and 33. What does he say there? John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descend as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him. Here's how he came to recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The one who sent John, the one who commissioned John to baptize is the one who is going to illumine John's mind to who this lamb of God is. John says twice, right? I didn't recognize him. He says that in verse 31. I didn't know who he was. He says it in 33. I didn't know who he was. Now we have to pause there for a moment because some of us are going to say, wait a second, he should have known who he is. Why do we say that? They're they're cousins. But we don't know for sure if they grew up together. Uh, They may not out tossing the balls together, tossing ball together back and forth. We don't know if they grew up playing together. We know they were related. I don't even think that's what John is talking about. I don't think it's that type of recognition. I think what he is talking about, he didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one. He didn't understand who he was in that context. But what's going to give him information on what, what's going to validate the ministry of this man who is coming to be baptized in Matthew 3? Three things. Number one, we see in the text that the Spirit. Is going to consecrate Jesus. Why? Jesus is the God man. Why does Jesus need to be consecrated or gifted with the Spirit? Why does Jesus need the Spirit? Why does Jesus need the Spirit? Well, maybe he doesn't. You know, it's just a bad interpretation. Why does Jesus need the Spirit? He's 100% God, 100% human. That didn't give it to you yet. That didn't give you the an answer yet. Cuz he's human, he needs the spirit. He's 100% human. Do believers need the spirit? Absolutely. Jesus needed the spirit in his humanity. So we see the confirmation, excuse me, the consecration of the spirit. By the way, in Matthew and really the synoptics, how does it describe the birth of Je- or excuse me, the baptism of Jesus? What's the first thing that happens? Before that, sky cracks. Can you picture that? The sky cracking before you, you're out baptizing, you're out in the wilderness, and the sky cracks open. Then the Spirit descends, rests upon him. By the way, why does it say it remains upon him? John was an Old Testament prophet. And what happened with the spirit in the Old Testament? It came and it, and it went. Not in this case. Not even in the case of John the Baptist. It remained with him. It remains on Jesus. So he is consecrated by the spirit. By the way, this is prophesied. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Behold, my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Where have we seen this before? Jesus' first sermon. He quotes this and says, this is fulfilled. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus quotes this and says, this is me. The Spirit rests on him. He is consecrated by the Spirit. But what also do we see? And we have to go to the Gospels. We don't have time this morning to go there right now. But if we really go to the Gospel, who else shows up on the scene and communicates something? What does the Father communicate? So we've got the Spirit descending upon the God-man, and we've got the Father saying, what? Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So we've got the Spirit We've got the father there communicating. And then we've got the consolation of the son. Look at what, this, what John says the son is going to do. He upon, this is halfway through the verse, verse 33. He upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John baptized the baptism of repentance. This one is going to baptize in the spirit. Who do we see there working? We see all three of them working, don't we? We see the triune God there at the baptism of Jesus. So when people come to you and say, I don't see any evidence for the, for the Trinity in the Bible, this is one of the places you can go. We see all three working in this. And this, this is the Athanasian Trinity. The Athanasian Trinity, as we've talked about before, um, remember the Arian heresy that comes at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Athanasius was one of the few that were defending the deity of Christ. Um, Arius and the others were, were saying, No, he's not God, he's created. So here's what it's saying. We don't, we'll go over this Trinitarian thought much, much in this book. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There are three persons, yet one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Like the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it there is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection a completely pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or emotions, unchangeable, immensely vast, eternal, limitless, almighty, completely wise, completely holy, completely free, and completely absolute. He works everything according to the purpose of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is completely loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering. He overflows with goodness and truth. He forgives wickedness, transgressions, and sin, and rewards those who diligently seek him. His judgments are completely just and awesome. He hates all sin and will not acquit the guilty. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that shows up at Jesus's baptism. So we see the, consolis- or excuse me, the consolation of the son, the communication of the father, and then finally the consecration of the spirit. So what's this whole idea of being baptized with the spirit? What does that mean? When, did the ba- when does the baptism of the spirit happen in a believer's life? the moment you believe. And you get it in increments, right? So you get, a, you, you get a little bit more spirit today, right? And every time you come to church, I'm going to hold back because I make you only get it on Sundays. So, you know, and only between the hours, you guys are good, between 11 and 12. So uh, you get a little bit more incremental spirit, right? Is that the way it works? Once you get the spirit, which spirit do you get, by the way? Because Jesus got the, you know, Jesus got like the A1 credit spirit. Like he's got that top, 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 I was going to say top shelf, but that would reveal some things about myself that you may not need to understand. Um, he, he's the top, top, top guy. he gets the top spirit. We get a little less, Donna, right? We get a little less than the spirit. We get the same spirit, brothers and sisters, the moment we believe. Do you believe that? You have the same spirit Jesus got. That's why when Paul and Peter and all the apostles say, go and do and be like Jesus, that's why we can, because we have the same spirit working in us. Um, but there are some who would take this passage, and by the way, primarily this is probably referring to Pentecost, where he's going to baptize all believers, and the Spirit's going to be ushered in, and those things will start to happen. Some will say there are subsequent blessings, though, that there's a second baptism. I don't know if you've ever been in those kind of backgrounds, more Pentecostal backgrounds, that they will say there's an accompanying baptism that comes that allows you to do what? Speak in tongues and etc. That's I would suggest to you that's not what the Scriptures teach. It may seem like that. But it doesn't teach that. And there's also a filling of the Spirit. Is it the same thing as baptism and filling? Well, because Paul seems to say, be, he doesn't seem to say, he does say it, be filled with the Spirit, be being filled with the Spirit. Right? So so there's this idea that we're constantly walking in the Spirit. But the baptism comes the moment you believe. And you get the, guys, don't think you get it incrementally, please. I, I, I so hate the songs, give me more of your Spirit. How much do you need? I mean, that would be God, I think, speaking. How much more spirit do you, I've given you. You're not going to get it incrementally. What you might say is um, spirit take over and make there less of me. Um, spirit crucify more of me. That'd be a great song. I wonder if it would hit the airwaves and be popular in Christian, Christendom. Kill all of me. Kill all of me. Oh, I can, it's coming. That's inspiration. It's not about us. we got all the spirit we're going to get. To be baptized with the spirit by the son happens the moment you believe. By the way, I want you to go back and look at something real quick. He says in verse 29, he takes away the sins of the world. Who said that? Who said he takes away the sins of the world? Make sure we're listening. Who said those words? He takes away the sins of the world. Who said that? In the context of this passage, who says it? John the Baptist. Who is he saying it to? Jews, no Gentiles around, right? So when John uses world to them, who does he mean? He means Jew and Gentile. Why is that important for us? Because you're Gentiles. Just to let you in on a little something. You're Gentiles. The whole world, he came to take away the sin. Because remember, what was the Jew thinking about God and their Messiah? It's only for us. John's saying, no, he came to take away the sins of all the people in the world who will believe and trust, which is why we ought to be very, 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 very thankful. Very thankful. We've been grafted in to that branch. Isn't that wonderful to know? So we see uh, this Trinitarian idea. Then finally, we see in this last, last little verse, the affirmation. John now speaks. John, the gospel writer, is now speaking in verse 34. I myself have seen And have testified that this is the son of God. John is now stepping back in and saying everything that John the Baptist said, then I am affirming now. I I testify that what John says happened, son coming, excuse me, the spirit coming, falling on him, remaining on him, father speaking. Jesus baptizing with the Spirit, I am confirming all these things. I am testifying that these things are indeed true. Now, there's some question here, depending on your translation, your words may be different than what mine say. Mine say, I myself have have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Does anybody's translation say anything different? Born Born witness? God's chosen one. That's a little different. God's elect one, some translations may say. Now, we, then, here's why we have to say, okay, what happened here? We don't know for sure. On the internet notes, I gave you an explanation from D.A. Carson that I won't go into all the detail, but it seems like in some of the earlier manuscripts, it says elect of God or chosen of God. But maybe some of the translators, now remember when they translated the Bible, when they copied the Bible, did they run down to Kinko's? Oh, I'm sorry, it was Gutenberg. They ran down to Mr. Gutenberg. And said, Gutenberg, can you copy this for us? Is that how they copied it? It was by hand. So they believe that maybe it's a copyist area where he added in to this section to maybe give more clarity to the Son of God. We don't know for sure. But there are earlier transcripts that say, chosen by God or elect of God, that same idea. Now let's think about this as we close out. What was Jesus elected for? Say it again, Dave. To die. To die. I have chosen him to come and die. This is the Lamb that we are faithfully to be witnessing of. The exclusive Lamb of God who was elected, chosen before the foundation of the world to come and die. He came to die, brothers and sisters, for sinners. He didn't come to make your life better. He didn't come to make your marriage more fruitful. He will do those things. But he came to make dead people alive. He came to make sick people whole. Do you believe that this morning? Do you trust in that lamb this morning? Is he, John declares him to be this. Have you received that declaration? He is indeed the Lamb of God that takes away my sins. He takes away the sins of others, but he took away my sin as well. So if that's true of you, what keeps you from telling others or testifying about who he is to others? As you're sprinkling your salt around your ice this afternoon or whatever you might be doing this afternoon, as you go out to the restaurant, as you break bread with your sweetheart, And that waitress comes up. Can I tell you about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? I am a faithful witness of his. And I'm proclaiming his exclusivity. He's the only Savior. He's the perfect Savior. We're going to have communion here in a moment. I can't think of a more fitting time to reflect upon the body and blood of the Savior than after a message like this. But I think one of the things that we constantly want to remind you, especially when it comes to communion, some churches, we we practice what's called an open communion. Some churches do closed communion. Basically what that means is if you're not a member of that church, you you can't take communion. And their goal in that, in fencing the table, is to make sure because they're as certain as they can be, that those members are, are believers. And their concern is the admonition found in 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, to, if you don't discern the body of the Lord rightly, you eat and drink what? Damnation to yourself. And when I was a kid, like some of these kids I see in here, I didn't have this understanding. I just saw, hey, there's, it's late. There's crackers and juice being passed my way. Take eat. That was not right. The Lord's supper is for the Lord's people. And if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should refrain from the table. I would suggest to you that if you're not going to discern the body of the Lord rightly, you should refrain from the table. In other words, you're living in such a way that is so radically displeasing to him. How can you say... That, Lord, I'm going to continue to live this way and still come and take of the table of the Lord. Now, does that mean the table is Lord is for perfect, perfect people? Because none of us would be taking it. It is for repentant people who desire the strength that the communion provides for us. Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace, God. We sup on you with our brothers and sisters. We're in union with you and union with one another. And we need your strength. So it's for repentant people, broken people, not for the proud. I've got it all together. None of us have it all together. God, I need you. So we need to take this very, 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 very seriously as we reflect upon the table of the Lord. So let's pray. We'll sing a song and then Jared's going to come up and lead us in a time of reflection upon the table of the Lord. Let's pray together.